0: back to the Willow Center podcast. I am your host, Chase Cotton, the Community Director here at the Willow Center in Brownsburg, Indiana, along with my ever-faithful co-host.
1: Hi, I'm Mason. I'm the Recovery Empowerment Coordinator here at the Willow Center. All right. it's This is uh, episode six of season three of our podcast.
0: And last month, we had a pretty engaging conversation, just me and Mason, uh, talking about all things cannabis and uh, I thought we we really covered some good points there. I thought it was interesting, engaging. We tried to do our best to tell the whole truth about cannabis compared to what you might hear online. Uh, and this month, uh, we're so excited to dive into another hot button topic as it uh, as it relates to. Uh, mental health and recovery and that's the concept of harm reduction and we are so grateful to my old friend and colleague in the community michael avia who is the public health education specialist for the Hendricks county health department michael why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as our guest this, this
2: month hi yeah well first of all thank you so much for having me I'm very excited to be here um but yeah my name is michael avia um i'm a health educator at the Hendricks county health department um i also help coordinate the health partnership that's so we right. do a lot of work with um, substance use and mental health, behavioral health, that's all very big topics right now And there's very much a need for that in our community and I know outside of our community as well So I do a lot of stuff centering around education and programming and yeah, just very happy to be here Appreciate it Can you give us just a little bit more background on how you got into
0: public health as a field And what the overlap is between public health and the more specific issues of mental health and recovery?
2: Yeah, absolutely um, So it's kind of an interesting story Um I, when I was first going to school, I had like five million things I wanted to do, <laughs> and um, eventually I settled <laughs> settled for pre-med, and you know, a few semesters in, I was like, wow, I hate this, yeah. um, but I did get to take one public health elective, and it was the most interesting class I had ever taken, just hearing about the social factors and the st- systemic factors that like influence health and all the stuff that mm-hmm. really doesn't get talked about much, especially like prevention and all the ways that you can do it. And I was like, I want to know more about this, so yeah. I started taking more public health classes. And I was like, yeah, no, this is my jam. I am very much loving this, and I think that's kind of how um, I got into public health. I was also very active in like activism um, and equality, and then when I learned that the two were kind of like linked together yeah intertwined. Yeah, i was like oh wow this is like for me i love this so yeah. that's kind of how my journey got started i think it's just uh interesting coincidences yes <laughs> i
0: love that oh, we're so glad to have you michael and I, I always am excited just to spend more time with you that's the first time i've heard his story in probably what like four yeah. years since i interviewed you for your job
2: yeah <laughs> no it's so weird yeah we've known each like, other for a long time yeah like three and a half years i think because i started in march of 2020 so yeah that's right it's been a while
0: you your first day was like the week before the state shut down
2: yeah literally i got there and they were like we have covid and i was like hello it was a very first uh very fun first day
0: yeah good times happier times now how about we dive into this topic what do you think you ready woo let's do it all right so why don't we start just by laying some basic foundation and giving our listeners kind of a general definition. What What is the best general definition of what harm reduction is, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, so kind of going back to public health, I think one of the core things of public health is the concept of prevention. So preventing things before they happen um, and then trying to prevent things from getting worse. There's different levels of prevention. And I think harm reduction is a very... Good example of that because harm reduction in its core is trying to mitigate something from getting worse. And so, usually, there's um, an action or behavior. Um, It's typically talked about in the substance use realm Mm -hmm. um, for those suffering from substance use disorder. But um, really, what you're trying to do is negate the negative consequences associated with that behavior. And in doing so, you help that person and other people. so that way they're not dealing with a load of other problems that's like in addition to what they're currently facing. Yeah. And one thing that's I think is pretty cool about it as well is that um, or not even cool, but just a core part of it is that, you know, in order to actually help someone, you kind of have to meet them where they are a lot of time and acknowledge right. that maybe this thing isn't going to change now. But we can if we keep doing what we can to help them be as safe as possible we can eventually treat them before it, something bad happens.
1: That, that's such a good definition. And I, I guess I'm curious, like, to meet somebody where they're at, what activities, services, programs, wh- what would you do to meet them where they're at with harm reduction?
2: Yeah, I think it really, um, it depends on the person, and I think it depends on their level of, comfort and where they are in treatment and things like that but for substance use there's so many different types of um, like programs and um, for different types of things so it's not even for just one substance it's like you know there's alcohol addiction there's um, opioids there's all these other things Um, so kind of like talking about opioids because that's been a very hot topic in the county and I mean everywhere really Um, there are things like fentanyl test strip programs where people are given these tools to basically test the potency of something to see if there's fentanyl in it before they use Mm. because we know that fentanyl is like killing people a lot of the time because it's leased in and they don't know right um there's also other things like um needle exchange Mm. programs which we've seen that in some counties in indiana be very successful like scott county Mm -hmm. um also very much stigmatized still um can you
0: tell us what actually is that? Cuz there might be some listeners that are like what the heck is needle exchange? That just sounds sharp and scary. So, yeah, <laughs> tell us a little bit more about that is and, and maybe tell us a little bit more about the fentanyl test strips and as you list these, just give us some details. Tell us tell us like we've never heard it before.
2: Okay, yeah, can definitely do that cuz needle exchange does kind of sound scary. Um so basically the concept of that is, well, I guess I'll talk about the problem first. Yeah. So, a lot of the time when somebody's using and they're um, using needles to inject a substance, um, there's a lot of sterilization that does not happen. Mm. And when you don't do that, it leads to a lot of bloodborne pathogen related diseases. And so a lot of things like um, HIV or hepatitis can spread from uh, person to person if you're sharing needles, which yeah. is very common practice. And so needle exchange programs are kind of a way for people who are currently using to take their dirty needles and get them exchanged for clean ones. And so um, and some of them even include like uh, like sterilizing kits like alcohol and cotton pads and things like that. And so um, what you're basically doing is giving people a safer way to do this thing so that they don't um, so they can reduce the risk of um, getting a terrible thing like HIV or hepatitis that doesn't really go away. Um, and in doing that, you don't just help that person, you help other people as well. Um, because if we're reducing the numbers of those cases, then it doesn't affect that one person. It affects all the other people that are maybe using near them as well. That's a good point. So um, I would say that's kind of a summary of what needle exchange is. Okay.
1: And, and, on, and on top of that, I mean, you think of first responders and people who maybe w- would come in contact with this person in a medical facility right like it's protecting those it protects really the community at large is kind of what i'm hearing you say
2: yeah absolutely i think we tend to think of these as like individual cases a lot of the time of like oh you're just helping this one person but in reality it's kind of like um they're different because it's spread differently but it's almost like the concept of herd immunity where Mm. like (laughs) the more people you're protecting like through vaccines or um preventative actions um the more safe all of us are
0: so what are some other other
2: services and programs
0: that would be considered harm reduction? In addition to, you've listed fentanyl test strips to test the purity of a substance to make sure that you, you aren't getting something you don't know that you're getting. Um, you've mentioned needle exchange programs. What else would fall into those categories?
2: Yeah. One that I think is kind of more, um, I would call it more hands-off would be like naloxone training and mm-hmm. distribution, yeah. which is something that we're seeing a huge increase of across not even just Indiana, but just na- like nationwide. We're seeing a lot of um naloxone distribution program so for, for the anyone that doesn't
0: know what naloxone is what is that yes
2: <laughs> so uh good question um so um naloxone is basically an opioid overdose reversal medication and so the most popular form that we give out and that other communities give out is usually the nasal spray form and so basically when somebody's having an overdose um you give them this nasal spray um Well, let me be more specific. When they're having an opioid overdose, um, you give them this nasal spray and essentially it works to reverse that overdose and help keep them alive. And so um, part of the reason that I think it's kind of classified as harm reduction, because somebody could say like, well, that's just medication, though. I think part of the reason it's considered harm reduction is because there's also a lot of the times the educational components of like by teaching somebody how to use naloxone and... Um, how to recognize symptoms of opioid overdose and all of these things, mm-hmm. you're not necessarily preventing them from using it. You're more so giving them tools to help themselves or help another person just in case something goes wrong. And I think that's kind of where the harm reduction part comes in because you don't want this person to pass away and you don't want um, somebody they're around to pass away either. So um,
0: so what I hear you saying is that there's there's a, a pretty specific focus on keeping people alive.
2: Yeah, Can absolutely. Can you tell us more about
0: Why? Why? Is that kind of like a heart behind it? Like, how would you better define that idea?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this kind of sounds like a simplification, honestly, but you can only help people when they're alive. And so, (laughs) which sounds very obvious, but um, when people are alive, you still have a chance to work with them. You have a chance to help them get better and reach a better place. Mm -hmm. And maybe they'll get to a point where they're able to help other people like with peer recovery. And so um, harm reduction at its core is really just keeping people alive so they can hopefully get to the point where they're able to get help. Because we don't want to give up on people. We want to keep trying and doing what we can to help them at every stage. Yeah,
1: that's helpful. What a hopeful message. And I I guess that, that brings a question to my mind. So if harm reduction has this hope and joy behind it, and we're really trying to help people... You know sometimes in the media i think it can be skewed so what is harm reduction not is there any misinformation that maybe needs to be dispelled about it
2: oh i could go on and on about misinformation hey, please do. give us an earful <laughs> yeah okay so the number one thing that i hear constantly especially in indiana it's not just indiana though it's everywhere but the number one thing probably the first thing you're ever going to hear is you're enabling people people mm. always default to harm reduction being a form of enabling someone and encouraging them to use this thing. Mm. And that is really like super not true. Mm. Um, Harm reduction is evidence-based and it's not just, it isn't simply just here you go. You can keep doing this thing. We're not going to do anything else. It's there's, you know, there's different stages of it. And so I think part of the problem with that like line of thinking is that, um, it's it comes from a place of a lot of like stigmatized beliefs I think yeah um so I guess to tell a more like personal story that I experienced while trying to bring like nalox box to Hendricks County is you know there were some people that were very upset about oh for people that don't know nalox box is just a naloxone distribution box in three places in our county that anyone can go to 24 7 they can get um, naloxone no questions asked um and they can take it if they need it for themselves or for someone else. And so- What are those three locations, Michael? Oh yeah, (laughs) Um, I should probably be more specific. Um, One is at the Brownsburg Library, one is at Family Promise in Plainfield, and the other one is at the Journey Church of Avon. Uh So while trying to bring that here, there were some voices that were very much upset about it because they were saying, well, if people feel safe doing it, then they're just going to keep doing it. And you giving them naloxone is just going to promote them uh, and encourage them to keep doing it more and you know when you have thinking like that um i think it really i i do, i do think it sends a message to people i think it sends a message that it sounds a little severe but almost like the helping hand we're willing to give can only go so far yeah um which sounds intense but i i really do think that's the message that people send, And I think one of the most important things, especially when working with people that do need help is building up that sense of trust um, and building up that sense of community and support, because it's not a substance use and addiction and uh, mental health. They're not things that we navigate through alone. They're things that we navigate through with a support system and with a community, whether we want to think of it that way or not, that's kind of just how the reality is. And so when our community is getting enraged that we're helping people stay kind of safe right. like you're sending this message to them that like i'm not wanted um you don't matter you don't matter people don't want to help me mm-hmm. um all those messages are things that you're sending to people and i do think that affects people's ability to feel safe and comfortable even trying to talk about like getting treatment in any form right. so i would say the enabling thing um that was my number one
1: well if we want uh, uh, to, to maybe stay on enabling for one second yeah when i when i hear you talking about like naloxone for and as an example right Mm -hmm. and people trying to keep it out of the community that is like the most it almost feels like the most basic form of harm reduction Uh, you know assuming harm reduction is just let's keep people alive and then we're going to take away something that just saves their lives it doesn't make them feel better it's just like literally if you overdose and are on the like your heart is currently stopping okay, like this will save you. And so it's hard for me to think of that as enabling. And so if that's hard to push, I can't imagine trying to push the needle exchange program or any of the other forms of harm reduction that you mentioned at the beginning.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very valid point. And one thing that I kind of thought about before this was, um, you know, the naloxone thing was actually a lot easier to push. There was some pushback, but it was way easier to push than other forms of harm reduction and i started thinking about like the why and like looking at different forms of harm reduction and like how do we determine what is acceptable and what's not and one thing that just kind of occurred to me is like the sequence in which the harm reduction is like done seems to matter a lot for some reason so if naloxone was a medication that you took before using a substance that would then prevent you from having an overdose I feel like it would be more stigmatized than a thing that is administered after.
0: That's a really good point. Yeah.
2: Because, like, fentanyl testing strips, it's not like they're they're not doing anything other than testing the potency. Um, needle exchange programs, you know, people are given needles with the expectation that they're probably going to use again. And so it's seen as this kind of, like, enabling thing. So I, I, I guess it's, like, that was one thing that I just thought of, like, the sequence matters the, the sequence order in matters which
0: something w- in which the intervention is delivered or yeah. the order in which the intervention is utilized matters to the general public as far as what they're going to think about that particular intervention
2: right for some people they're like it's said and done and for others i think it's just it's just not that way so yeah
0: that's really challenging i, I think you know back when i was a public health education specialist at <laughs> <with> the county <laughs> health department <laughs> one of the first things i learned and, and was corrected on, I would argue, because I, I had some, some stigma that I was carrying about the harm reduction movement, um, was, was that almost every form of a harm reduction program includes a personal contact of some sort and uh, an education, right. right? Which like, that that personal connection, even if it is just like, hey, this is, this is a resource that you can call at any time, right? This is a number that you can call if you need help, mm-hmm. right? If it's something as simple as that or if it's something as as time-consuming and as robust as, like, having a specialist who you can go meet with, right, to learn more about this issue and learn about what resources are available in the county, right? Like, those things are all part of the harm reduction programs that we're talking about, right? And that educational component can be the key to unlocking someone's recovery journey, which they won't experience if they're dead. Again, to hammer that point home, Mm -hmm. it's like you can't save a dead person or at least— It's really hard. (laughs) Yeah. I suppose there's been some cases. Maybe my EMS friends would would disagree with me on that. But uh, yeah, I I just think that's so important for our listeners to to hear and remember is that, like, we're not asking you to be comfortable with this, right? It's an uncomfortable, difficult topic. We're just asking for a little more compassion about it. Right. Right. What it boils down to is how valuable is a human life?
2: Exactly. And I think we have to kind of prioritize more than our own, like what you said, more than our own comfort, uh, more than what we feel content with, we have to be willing to put aside our personal feelings about something and prioritize the human life over everything else.
0: Okay, so with that in mind, since we're all on the same page and hopefully our listeners on the same page with us on that compassionate point, I think it's important to also sort of play the critique for a moment and, and, and try and identify, are there any areas that maybe the harm reduction movement needs to reconsider or um, needs more clarity or education about before it moves in these certain directions so uh, is harm reduction only about saving life or does it also include maybe even unintentionally like some other components that are more about protecting everybody else and not necessarily the person that's suffering let me give you an example yeah so like um there are some programs that that are more popular and more acceptable on, in some of the coastal States in the United States um, that essentially relegate those who are, are dealing with a drug addiction to specific areas with specific programs that are just for them in this specific area that they can only get in this specific area. Mm-hmm. And that keeps them away from the rest of the public. And the public doesn't really have to know or care about what's happening because they're all directed over here to this area. And I, I I can't help but think to myself, like, is that st- not still some sort of piece of stigma at play there? Like, what's, what's your opinion on that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, the first thing that kind of comes to mind is homelessness to me. Yeah. Um, because homelessness is a thing that's in almost every community. Oh, every, it is in every, is community, every community, everywhere yeah. you go. And there's a lot of places and a lot of like people that don't like seeing homelessness at all. And it's not because that, it's not because homelessness upsets them necessarily. It's kind of because of f- what it indicates for like themselves and their community. Um, there's a lot of people that are like out of sight, out of mind, like in Hendricks County, for example, I, I think it's a lot harder to find people that are homeless here, at least like, like visually, visually speaking. Yeah. speaking and um, just going by the definition of somebody that's like sleeping on the street or something like that. Whereas if you go to Indianapolis and you're driving downtown um it'll be way more apparent there right and so i think i feel like separating them from the population kind of does harm because it's not encouraging them to think about those i feel like it's a lot easier to discard people if they're off somewhere else and they're not necessarily around you or you're not seeing them yeah and we don't want that i feel like that can make you lose compassion very easily and build like a us versus them mentality right I don't think there's many people that look at somebody that's homeless and think like like mean things like oh yeah like serves you right or whatever like that kind of thinking. <laughs> there might be some. <laughs> there might wild, be some. <laughs> In Indiana, there <laughs> might be some. That's true. I forgot we relived for a sec. <laughs> um Usually, there's not malicious intent around homeless people, usually. and so like it it feels like it's necessary part of kind of building reality, the reality that like substance use isn't just a thing that affects some people it's not just the thing that affects people in this area or right. something like that it's it can be everywhere yeah
1: and, and that just made me think of an example you know like in, in media you there's this archetype of somebody like an uber rich person going into um i went mean, undercover boss that's the that's the show I oh yeah of. it's like oh you go in to like the actual like work day of your company and it's like oh this is horrible right and like you can see the pain of your workers and it's to, i don't know i don't know if this is a good example but it's like if we were to move everyone like everyone in active addiction to a certain place it's like well you are erasing the pain of all these people and then we're like maybe like, like we don't see it we don't care about it out of sight out of mind and then it's like once you know the communities are full or people like you know active addiction just is everywhere so once we start to see it again then it's like oh now we're dealing with the same issue but with less compassion and then it kind of starts a cycle that just creates
2: more isolation isolation. yeah yeah kind of going off the undercover boss thing this is like um just a personal problem i have with the show um but i promise it's relevant i'm not just (laughs) venting um so one of the things i really hate about that show is that it'll be a boss that comes into the like restaurant or wherever and they're undercover and they meet this employee that's like yeah i'm in college i have three kids i work three jobs i'm very tired i don't have enough money and um i'm a hard worker though and that person deserves the world absolutely but instead of thinking about like oh wow i should probably make better conditions for everyone because this pro- this person's not the only one going through this. um they only help that one person with a fat check and everybody else that's like, "Oh, I mean, I just broke my leg yesterday, but I'm still here kind of gets nothing right um and so I feel like tying that back into substance use um it needs to be systemic. It can't just be individual like oh, we're helping this one person here, we're helping mm. this one person there. We need to have systems that support people on a mass level, and I think that's something that um thinking about harm reduction. That's something that needs to be um, definitely considered.
1: And to, to kind of go back to the core of the question of do does harm reduction affect the society, I, I have actually kind of an interesting story about that. So somebody close to me uh, grew up in southern Indiana, and th- there is, um, you know, a very large population of people actively addicted down there. And the they would go to the playground and there would be needles all over the playground and kids would get, be getting HIV or AIDS just from playing on the playground and so I think um, needle exchange programs can be a hard sell but when you see it like that and it's like oh this is genuinely getting needles off the streets and, and so it's like it's protect the community as well as protecting the individuals and that's an extreme example but it could happen to anybody you know if you li- if you leave a needle lying around it in Indianapolis and, and then somebody
0: you know like, like anybody could be accidentally like stuck yes, yeah exactly if i could summarize your point like what what i hear you saying is a, a a well-designed harm reduction program will not focus solely on the public good and ignore the good of the person we're trying to save It yeah. will also not focus solely on the person being saved and ignore public safety it has to be both and is that a good summary
2: absolutely yeah. okay yeah I, like that. <laughs> yeah I think one other thing that's kind of like relevant um which you've probably heard of this if you live in indiana but you know scott county had a really hard time and when we look at the history of harm reduction in the u.s and in indiana like harm reduction wasn't legally allowed to be paid for by federal dollars until like 2009 wow um which is very recent yeah. opioid yeah. epidemic started like forever ago not till 2009, and in Indiana, the only reason that, like, um, you know, just to kind of, I guess for anyone that doesn't know, Scott County had a large um, outbreak of HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis because there was a huge substance use problem there. Um, There were a lot of people that were getting addicted, like, at the age of, like, 15 and younger, um, and, like, for some people, It would be just a thing in their family that was normalized. There'd be some families that all would be sharing the same needles. It was very much a widespread community thing, and so they had been declared as a public health emergency, which permitted them to be uh, able to do like harm reduction. And so they started up their needle exchange program, and um, they had peer recovery coaches in, and um, they started seeing things get. Uh, better over time and it's significantly improved since then Right. Um, and their levels of HIV and hepatitis, all those things started to get better immediately and so it wasn't just affecting one person, it was a whole community wide effort but at the same time individual lives were definitely changed and if even if there was just one person that was currently engaged in the harm reduction program um, one thing that they saw was that those people started, ended up ending up on board with the program itself as peer recovery coaches so they started building a network of people that were able to go out and help um, other people and the thing that was beautiful about it is you know they knew each other before maybe some of them even used together before and to see that person on the other side to see them maintain recovery um, it really just made it more possible so I think that's kind of a example of how the individual affects community and vice versa
0: what's well, an example of how when it's well designed it can actually work you know <laughs> like it can work really well I, I, I do have one more one more critique maybe one more hot button topic to ask you about more or less just because I'm, I'm curious what your professional opinion is mm-hmm. so one of the I would argue probably the most recent um, components of, of the overall umbrella of harm reduction movement is this idea of um, substance replacement some people call it substance replacement therapies the slang term uh, oftentimes used is the california sober movement right where um i was addicted to opioids or i was addicted to methamphetamines and i have used cannabis to replace that right because cannabis is at least less deadly which we kind of talked about uh you know last month not necessarily less harmful in the long term but it's not going to kill me immediately so it's reducing harm um, by that definition what is your opinion on on that sort of more recent movement uh, or more recent component of the movement and do you have any any professional advice for those of us that are trying to figure out especially if there are any like like providers listening to this like how we should navigate that if a client approaches us and says well what do you think about this what should i do can i just smoke all the time instead of this
2: yeah i think that's such a good question and i think one of the things that makes it so interesting is because I especially in the public health world um, and the healthcare world, I think a lot of times things have been traditionally taught as black or white. Something is bad or or it's good. Mm There's no in between. And I think harm reduction kind of bridges that in a lot of ways. Mm. And so um, as part of meeting people where you are, uh, where they are, um, a lot of the times um, you may find yourself kind of compromising what you normally would have done um, and feeling like, well, this isn't necessarily great either, but if it's going to help this person get to a place where they need to be eventually to recover, then we can, you know, that kind of, that kind of thinking. And so likewise, um, it is a lot harder for cannabis, especially because we know that it does cause a lot of long-term harm and same with like vaping. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that's, more difficult with vaping is that, you know, we don't have a lot of long term studies because it's relatively new. Right. But um, the thing I always think of when I'm faced with these is kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, where I think, okay, anything is better than dying or the potential of dying. And so if somebody was using something that they could overdose on and that was a very likely reality. Um, even just the chance of it happening because of um, frequent use. Yeah. My immediate thought is, okay, well, I guess if that's like the extreme, almost anything has to be better for it, even if just for a temporary amount of time is kind of what I think. Step in the right direction, essentially. Yeah. Um, Because no one's going to overdose, like, smoking cannabis. Mm. Well, it's not a... It it feels weird to promote from a public health perspective because like we're literally like yeah tobacco free um this and don't smoke and all of this. Yeah. Um, but
0: to your point, even what you just said, it feels weird to promote. I wouldn't consider what you just said promotion. Which yeah, it's not. Like it's there's not a promoting it. difference, and maybe that's what it boils down to is like how the um you know the host or the agency that is providing the harm reduction service really approaches that idea. Because like it it would be one thing to say, we as an agency believe. You should use this substance instead, yes. and encourage you to do so in order to quit your other substance. That is promotion it, yeah, right. Versus what you just said is like, if this person is choosing to use this instead, and maybe we uh, I guess it would depend if if your agency isn't an abstinence based agency, like this is something that we won't provide consequences for as you take steps to, in, in, towards your recovery or whatever. This is something we're not going to criminalize while you take steps towards your recovery that would be more of a harm reduction idea without promoting the use like we still want you to quit right yeah this is bad for your health but But it won't kill you and if that's what you're choosing like we're going to meet you where you are Mm -hmm. and take you to let you help you take the next best step in the right direction
2: absolutely and then maybe after that you know we can work on the cannabis addiction as well right so
1: and and it sounds like this is a very holistic approach or, or for the California sober, you know, for you to be that, you have to have a holistic approach. I And it, it made me think of medical assisted treatment, right? If I was mm-hmm. to get on medical assisted treatment and not go to therapy and not go to, you know, any like recovery groups or get a community, then once I stop it, it's very likely that I would go back to my substance of choice. If I started off maybe using cannabis as a substitute and then again never did any of the work to towards like a life in recovery then it's probably going to end up leading back to that you know substance use still (laughs) and so if if you were to use cannabis in that way you have to continue to do the work holistically and accept that you know a life in recovery means a life without any substances eventually
2: yeah absolutely very well said
0: I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't say just as representatives of the Willow Center, the Willow Center is an abstinence-based recovery center. Um, you know that is a belief that that we hold as an organization, and that's something that we do our darnest to help our clients achieve. Um, so we don't necessarily uh, practice cannabis replacement here, um, but we would also be remiss if we didn't have a conversation about it. Because right. frankly, it's already happening. Mm-hmm. Right? We interact with our clients on a day to basis who who believe that maybe that's a, a way they can live their life and, you know, achieve some, some sort of twisted definition of sobriety, if you will, yeah. while still using cannabis products. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I guess I, I feel like if I had to summarize how, how I feel about it personally, as, as well as maybe on behalf of the Willow Center, is that we, we believe you're better than that, <laughs> you know? We believe you can achieve full sobriety. We believe you can do the hard therapeutic work, um, with or without the assistance of medication, which would also be considered harm reduction, like to get to that point where, you know, you you don't need a
1: substance in order to live your daily life. And if I may, that you you're, you're basically you're continuing to live in harm reduction instead of living to the fullest extent. You're living in harm reduction. You're not living fully. Mm. So move out of just reduction and move to the fullest. Move to a hundred percent.
0: Right move away from the harm altogether yes (laughs) yeah exactly
2: yeah and i think that's a really good point um one thing that i kind of thought of as you were talking about that was just um i was in a health coaching class uh when was that i don't know time sometime in the last year i was in a health coaching class and one of the things that we talked about uh quite often was meeting people where they are and what that looks like depending on um the health behavioral change and so um when we, you know, me liking public health, my favorite model is the transtheoretical model of change. Um, where you explain. look, yeah. So like basically change is not necessarily linear. Um, there's different stages to change and you kind of factor in, like I guess quote unquote failure is not necessarily seen as failure, but it's seen as a tool that you can then use to help promote the change because you're able to look at um the the barriers and kind of like analyze your behavior um at a very specific setback yeah and then you're able to use that to kind of help with the um end goal but one thing we always talked about was like for tobacco specifically kind of thing like if somebody's smoking like three packs of tobacco a day um your immediate goal isn't to get them to go from three packs to zero It starts off in very small changes. So maybe you're smoking two less a day this week. Um, and you're able to gradually get that down. If you're able to get it down to one pack, um, even any amount of small progress is seen as progress and it's good. Um, the ultimate goal is to get you to zero because that's where you're going to be the healthiest. Right. But you have to be able to be willing to get to zero because that's when you will in fact be the healthiest. Yeah. Um, and so i think it's kind of the same for this kind of thing where it's like maybe you're using one substance right now and cannabis is the step down from that like quote unquote yeah um but the end goal should be you being able to live without having to use those substances right. i even think i'm like not to say that i'm really hard on other people about this kind of thing um not substance use related at all kind of um but it's coffee um <laughs> like I try my a best. substance of choice It for is a most substance of America, but a lot of people, I think it kind of like brings it home where there's so many people that like, gosh, my roommate, they'll like drink like five cups of coffee a day and I'm like, you need to probably like scale that down a little bit because right. after a while you start I mean coffee addiction is a very much real thing. yeah, um I think if you kind of like symbolize it like that sometimes where it's like if you need this thing to function, maybe there's like a healthier way that you can go about changing that habit so you don't need it maybe it's something that's like
0: nice it's a solid litmus test like can i get through my regular daily life without this yeah and if the answer is no it's time to have a conversation
2: it's time to have a conversation doesn't really matter what it is specifically but uh like the first one all of us should ask before coffee is can i get through the day without my mobile device. Oh, I <laughs> fail that one. And <laughs> all of us squirm in our chairs and the listeners turn off the podcast. Yeah. 6.30 a.m. What's on the gram? Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start my day
0: with existential crisis. Let's do it. Love it. Well, what, uh, if any, uh, are some final pieces of encouragement or advice that you would give to our listeners as it relates to navigating this world of harm reduction in the healthiest way possible?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think the best thing that we could try to do as people, just in general, is to try and be understanding and compassionate to other people. There's always going to be people that are going through something that you may not be able to relate to because you haven't personally experienced it, Mm. um, regardless of what that thing is. And that's okay. You don't necessarily have to fully understand. You may never understand. But the most that you can do is to treat them with compassion and empathy and for that i think it requires us challenging our beliefs yeah um especially when it comes to substance use um challenge challenge yourself to start thinking of people as maybe like family members or your loved ones and things like that do whatever you can to kind of humanize this problem because it is a very human problem right. and it uh, it isn't a this isn't going to happen to me or somebody that I care about kind of situation.
0: Statistically, it already is happening to someone you care about.
2: Yeah. And so, um, you know, do your best to try and understand that change isn't something that's going to happen overnight. It can be very difficult sometimes and take a long time. Um, And sometimes in order to get the outcome we want, we have to maybe do things or support or encourage things that maybe we're not like entirely comfortable with like harm reduction Um, like seeing somebody exchange a needle may not be the most comfortable feeling in the world but knowing that you're reducing their chance of maybe having hepatitis C or HIV AIDS or have other problems because of that and that they're being safer and that that will hopefully help them get to a better place at some point of time um, I think that's the thing that you should hold on to, that
0: That compassion, uh, that empathy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that there is hope. Change is very much possible. Um, So, yeah, I just kind of I want to challenge the viewers to all practice that form of empathy and understanding. And when you start viewing people as people and humans and um, those that you love, um, I think it'll be easier.
0: Yeah, I think we can change the world. That's a great note to end on. Michael, thank you for being our guest this month.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
0: We appreciate all your hard work in the community and we appreciate your, uh, your wisdom and compassion and expertise on this topic in specific. That's been episode six of season three of the Willow Center podcast. Next month, we're going to be talking to uh, a guest about the idea of punitive versus restorative justice, trying to, to, you know, dig deep into some of the ideas on either side of that divide and, figure out um, the necessities of both sides, the downfalls of both sides, and and what the healthiest way to approach justice and criminal justice is as it relates to uh, addiction and mental health. I've been your host, Chase, and I'm Mason. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next month.